So we're, we're really glad you're here, and especially, again, those of you who are first-time guests, glad to see so many of you here this morning. Uh, we, you are in a good place because we welcome people who are of all different steps in their direction with the Lord, from people who don't know Christ but are kind of questioning, to those who've known Him for years. We want the Bible to be taught and worship to be on experience where everybody benefits and everybody can take a baby step toward Jesus Christ. Um, all right, we've been studying the remarkable life and teaching of Jesus Christ. And we believe at Revolution Church, the number one reason to become a Christian is Jesus. Jesus personally, if you will get to know him, you will understand why we love him so much and why we want to live for him. So our scripture reader this morning is Samantha. Samantha, if you'll come on up here, you can use this step over here if you like. And we'll set you up with this microphone right here. And if you want to join us in your Bible or on your device, we're in Mark chapter 14. It's interesting that the, use this one right here for me. Um, the first eight chapters of Mark took three years. The last eight chapters take a week. So you see Mark is moving full speed ahead like just going through things rapidly, and all of a sudden it just slows down in slow motion. And this is where we pick up. We are literally just a couple days before the, the death of Christ. So uh, Samantha, if you'll read for us and everybody follow along. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread, and chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him with stilt and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be a roar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leaper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it all over his head. There were some who said themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I said to you, wherever the gospel is, proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, Iscariot who was on the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, thank you, Samantha. Please give her a hand. Appreciate that. <clears throat> if you do a Google search on the top female role models for young women today, um, the list is kind of troubling. <laughs> some of them are good, some of them are bad. But uh, here's Malala Yousafi. Actually, she's one of the good role models. She stood up for women's right to vote in Afghanistan and was murdered by the Taliban. Um, this is Amal Alamuddin Clooney. She's the wife of who? George Clooney, right? She's a super intelligent lady, uh, a lawyer and a, and a world ambassador. Michelle Obama, 
And a lot of people mock her, which for different reasons, but I think she is a great role model as a mother. Um, Hillary Rodham Clinton, I'll just keep moving. Um, Christopher Amanpour, Christiana Amanpour, she's known as a worldwide uh, journalist who's been in the scenes of war reporting. Sheryl Sandberg is now the, the CEO of Facebook. Uh, Serena Williams, a great athlete. And uh, Ashley Graham, a supermodel. Uh, Emma Watson, very outspoken uh, about environmentalists. And then Ellen DeGeneres. And again, quite a mixed bag of people that we are called to have as role models for women in America. Uh, but what might be troubling is how many role models from the Bible, especially from the Gospel of Mark, that could we name? Could our girls name? Could young ladies name? What's interesting is if you study the Gospel of Mark carefully like we are, and like you've seen over the past few months, women are incredibly prominent. He takes women who are, in that culture, second-class citizens, no right to vote, don't testify in court, don't own property, don't hardly own anything unless there's no man in their life, and he exalts them to being equals. So when people say the Bible represses women, they're like, I'm like, what Bible are you reading? Jesus took women and exalted them. If we just look at the examples in the Bible of what, what women did. For example, he said that this lady that touched the hem of the garment had greater faith than anybody in all of Israel. And, and, and then we look at um, the Syrophoenician woman, and he talked about her faith. being He hadn't seen such faith like hers. And that, above all the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all these men, and then you take the woman that anointed Jesus' feet and talked about how wonderful that she was. And then um, in Mark chapter 15, verse 40, there was also women when all the men scattered like scaredy cats. Guess who stayed around the cross at the risk of their own life? Women. And he named them. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and the younger of Joseph and Salome and other women that were there when everybody else was running scared, the women were showing courage. And of course, who was at the tomb to make sure that, Jerry, that Jesus got buried properly? It was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph. So women play an incredible role in the Gospel of Mark, as you'll see, even from today's story. So I'm going to, and, and we've talked about chiastic structure in the Bible and how important that is. And Mark does a lot of these little mini chiasms, or many people call them Mark sandwiches, where he takes, he starts a story and then he interrupts his own story like he's ADD, but he's not. And he inserts a subject in there, and then he finishes the story. So you, you see that happening all the time. And, and he, the reason he does that, because he wants you to show at the middle of this sandwich is what's most important, and that is the woman who anoints him with oil. He starts off talking about a religious evil enemies, but then he talks about this woman who's anointed him, and then he ends with an, a, an evil religious enemy in the form of Judas. So... Let's look at how we're going to take this chapter apart here this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about scheming foes, those enemies of Jesus. We're going to talk about sincere friends. We'll talk about skeptical followers, scandalous, a scandalous fraud, and finally, a sovereign father. So there's five players in this little mini drama right here, and we'll talk about each one and their importance. So let's start off with the scheming foes. And by scheming foes, I'm not talking about Bob and Eloise, okay? Not, not those foes. We're talking about these foes, like your enemy, okay? Um, Bob Foe is, is one of our elders, so I just thought I'd poke fun at him this morning. So let's talk about the enemies of Jesus, the scheming foes. So it was two days before the Passover, and so here we're getting down. Jesus would be crucified on the Passover, because what happens on Passover? Let's talk about that. So 
In Exodus, remember Moses led the people out. And what was the 10th plague? There was 10 plagues hitting Egypt, that world empire, the dominant force in the world in that day, hitting them hard. And the 10th one was what? The death of the firstborn. Yeah, good. And so he said, and this will happen to everybody in all the land of Egypt. So here's what you need to do. You need to put what on the door? Put blood on the doorposts. Okay? And then, then he says, and when I pass over the land, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where we get the name of the Passover. So they sacrificed a lamb every year after that as a symbol of God passing over them. He did not pass over their homes because they were, everybody inside the house was good. He did not pass over the home because everybody inside the house was baptized. He didn't pass over because they gave lots of money to the church. He passed over simply because of one thing on the door. What? The blood. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, it's not whether you're a good person or a bad person, or whether you go to church a lot or not, or anything religious. It's about have you received Christ as your Passover lamb? Because when it comes to judgment day, he will look upon you and see the blood. Have you accepted Christ's sacrifice for your sins? That's what Passover is about. And Jesus, it will be the Passover. It's not about the lamb. No animal, as Hebrews could tell us, tell, tells us, no animal could atone for sins. The animals were a foreshadow of what was to come, and that's Jesus Christ. And of course, John the Baptist came, paving the way for the Messiah, right? And he's baptizing people of baptism of repentance. He sees Jesus coming down the hillside, and what does he say? He points to Jesus and says, what? Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the Passover Lamb of God. So here, the story of history is coming down to this point in time where Jesus will be the fulfillment of thousands of years of prophecy and typology. So, and it says also happening at the same time is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These two holidays, one was on a day, one lasted for a week, and the unleavened bread was a symbol of God providing manna for them in the wilderness along with the Passover bread. And Jesus comes in just days before this and says, I am the bread of life. So he's fulfillment of this simultaneous holiday at the same time. And so then it says that the chief priests, okay, the religious people, the people who love God, and the scribes, the people who are lawyers of the Old Testament, who love God, what are they doing? They are seeking how they can arrest him by stealth. That's important. They wanted to do it secretly. And what do they want to do with the Lamb of God? They want to kill him. It, 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 you will see all throughout the Bible and especially in the ministry of Jesus, that his biggest enemies are not the, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and, the, and all those evil people, although he doesn't condone their sin. His biggest problem is always with the religious people. And I'm telling you today, times have not changed. Times have not changed. Jesus, Jesus hates religion, especially when it's fake. So, and even back in verse 2, it says, not during the feast. They really didn't want this to happen. So, they wanted to be secretive, and they didn't want it to happen at all during the feast, especially at Passover. They didn't want it to happen in 3 o'clock in the afternoon when all the animals were being sacrificed. But when does it happen? It shows that they're not in control, but we'll talk more about that in just a second. Religious people can be the worst enemies of Jesus. You consider uh, what's called today progressive Christianity, which is not Christianity at all. Some progressive Christians believe Jesus rose from the dead. Some believe it was just a metaphor. Some believe in the Bible. Some don't. And, and some have all different types of theology. 
And you think, well, what is progressive Christianity? What do they have in common? They have one issue in common. They're all pro-LGBT. That's the only thing they have in common. So this title, Progressive Christianity, they present it as if it's some type of new, better Christianity, and it's not. It's just a ruse to, te- to deceive people as a stepping stone. And what's really interesting about it, when you look at all these churches that call themselves now progressive Christians, and some of them, years ago when they first came out, they exploded, and I say exploded on relative terms, you know, maybe went from 200 to 1,000. We're not talking about anything much bigger than that. And then years later, they all have gone in decline. Rob Bell, who wrote the liberal book called Love Wins, where he condones homosexuality and he says there's really not a literal burning hell. His church, when he first wrote the book, got big and now it's shrunk down. Because here's what progressive Christianity is. Progressive Christianity is for people to step out of true Christianity into progressive Christianity and then eventually out of Christianity altogether. It's just a stepping stone. It's not a destination of here going from good Christianity to better Christianity. It's really not Christianity at all. And then you've got hypocritical Christians. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you see one in the mirror sometimes. <laughs> you know, I remember one time I went to Atlanta when I, back years ago, a long time ago, when I was working for a consulting company. Uh, we, they sent us to Atlanta for training. And so most everybody in our group after dinner went down to the bar. I decided to go up to my room and call my family and say hi and not be in the party scene. So I get a phone call from one of the ladies I work with, and she said, Hey, Gary. Can you come down here? There's a lady here that's asking lots of questions about Christianity. I'm like, sure, I'd be glad to, to meet you down there. So I meet her down there in the lobby and we start talking. But the one lady who called me, she's got a drink in her hand, which again, you know how I feel about drinking. I'm not saying all drinking is unbiblical, but she had one too many, which is unbiblical. And she would not shut up. And, and she was hurting me trying to share the gospel with this lady because she kept interrupting with all kinds of stuff that wasn't even true. And it's like, you're pushing Christianity on this lady, and you're really not a good representation of it. And before you think I'm just pointing fingers at everybody, I'm guilty of that too. I, I noticed Manuel and Melinda have their Christ, uh, uh, Christ in Me, the Hope of Glory t-shirts. We had those t-shirts when we went through the book of Colossians. And I was wearing mine yesterday. And I told Manuel and Melinda, I said, the great thing about that t-shirt is, when you're wearing it, you better behave yourself. <laughs> Don't be a Karen at Kmart when you're when you're wearing a Christ together when a Christ T-shirt, okay? You know, and really, Bible says we should put on Christ. We should act like we're wearing a Christian T-shirt every day, and so it make us behave because we're representing Him. But hypocritical Christians really do a lot of damage to Christianity. Number one reason people say the reason they don't go to church anymore is they say, "Well, there's too many hypocrites in church," and they have somewhat of a case. But let me tell you something, Jesus will never disappoint you. Jesus was never hypocritical. Jesus was always sacrificial. Jesus lived a perfect life. So if you come to church for nobody else but Jesus, then come on to church and just put up with the rest of us hypocrites. Um, But they do hurt us. Lukewarm Christians, people who maybe aren't doing anything necessarily wrong, but they just won't really give it their all. They just kind of need a little dab of Christianity and fit it in on Sunday when they can. And they're not on vacation, they're not doing this, whatever. And they just kind of fit it in. And they're really not all that excited. And I think lost people may look at them and say, if Jesus is really everything, you don't seem to act like it. You act like he's just like the same as Little League Baseball and, and the Astros. It's just like something you're just a little bit excited about, maybe. You know, lukewarm Christianity hurts Christians as well. And the other thing that, that hurts Christianity is Christian cults. Christian cults. The Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, all these that claim to be Christian but are very far from it and have a very different Jesus. 
And that hurts Christians because you, you try to share the gospel with people and it's like you have to undo all these weird beliefs that they have. Whereas if you went to maybe a, some tribe in the deep dark Africa never heard about Jesus, it'd be easier to start with a blank sheet of paper and not have to undo all these weird ideas about Christianity. But that shouldn't be a surprise. Second Corinthians, Paul told the Corinthian church that Satan has his ministers of light. And he's causing confusion out there with all these things that claim to be Christian but are definitely not. So religion being the enemy of Christianity is, is nothing new. So let's move on to the sincere friends. The sincere friends. So he was at Bethany. Remember, Bethany is just two miles, just right outside Jerusalem. And this is Jesus' second headquarters. His first headquarters was Capernaum. His second headquarters towards the latter half of his ministry was Bethany. And so this story he's inserting here in this Mark sandwich, he's flashing back four days. Okay, if you compare with all the Gospels, he's gone backward in time. You ever do that? You're talking about something, and you say, hey, and then this past Saturday, we did this, 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 this. And then you get back to your current story. Some people look at that and say, well, that's a contradiction in the Bible. No, it's not. It's a flashback, and, and the timetable makes it very clear. So he's in the house of Simon the leper. Now, if he's in the house of Simon the leper, that means he's a former leper, right? So I inserted the word former there, because if he was still a leper... He would have to be on the outskirts of the town because he's super contagious. But he is a former leper, and he's hosting a dinner. And some people think this dinner is in honor of Lazarus, but we'll talk about that here in a minute. And so, in fact, John chapter 12 says six days before Passover. So here, it, it, he, he confirms the timetable. He's, he's doing a flashback to the weekend before. Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, and Jesus had raised him from the dead. Remember that? Lazarus' his friend. Remember the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept. That, the occasion of that was Lazarus had died. And even Jesus knew in the back of his head, I'm going to raise him from the dead. He still had compassion for everybody mourning for him around him and for Lazarus, one of his best friends. So, so Simon a leopard who had been cured is at this dinner, hosting the dinner. Some people think it's in honor of Lazarus and his resurrection party, kind of. And, uh, and also we see a woman Mark says it's a woman that came with this alabaster box, but we know from John it's Mary, Mary the sister of Martha. Remember Mary and Martha? Okay. And we'll see here, and the people here at this dinner, there's Mary, the wonderful worshiper. And then we'll talk about that in a second. John chapter 12 is what tells us that. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment and made from pure nard. So we know that Mark, when he says a woman, and Matthew and Mark don't name the woman, but John does. And some people think it's because Matthew and Mark were lit, written really early and they wanted to protect the names of the family because they were still being persecuted. But John is written like 30 years later when some of that, these people may have been even dead. So he feels free to name her. That's some people's theory on the whole thing. But so this is not the same story found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Remember when Jesus walks into the house of Simon the Pharisee and says, you know, you didn't even wash my feet. You didn't even greet me. You didn't give me a kiss. This woman's washing my feet and has been crying the whole time. Has done nothing but kiss my feet. Separate story. There's actually two, maybe even three anointings of Jesus. So don't confuse the two. Again, some people will say, well, there's a contradiction in the Bible. One time it calls him Simon the leper. Sometimes it calls it, calls it Simon the Pharisee. It's not the same story. Simon was an incredibly common name. In fact, there are 10 Simons in the Gospels. Can you name another one of them? Simon Peter. Simon the Zealot. There was two Simons in Jesus' group of 12. 
So it was a super common name. It's like the name John or Juan. It, there's, so you can't say every Simon in the Bible has to be the same one. And if it calls him a leper one time and it calls him a Pharisee another, it must be a contradiction. No, it's absolutely not a contradiction. In fact, um, we know from Luke that this happened two years earlier because John the Baptist is still alive. In, that, in John's account of the story that happened earlier, he talks about John the Baptist. Well, when this is happening a couple days before Jesus is crucified, what had happened to John? What happened to John? He was, yeah, he was beheaded. He was killed. So we know it's not the same story, so don't play the contradiction card. Um, by the way, teenagers, when you get to college, if you, don't, if you go to a state college, you're going to hear all the time, the Bible's full of contradictions. And almost every single Sunday, I deal with them. And every single Sunday, I can show you what the answer is. So when you hear that, go to college, say, ah, no, and, and just call me or text me anytime. I don't care if it's 2 in the morning. And just say, hey, my professor said this is a contradiction. And I guarantee I will show you that it is not and that he hasn't researched it and you need to research it. So, um, so one is in the home. So these two different anointings, one's in the home of Simon the Pharisee and the other is in the home of Simon the leper. And as I told you, there are 10 different Simons in the Bible. In both stories, that what they do have in common is both women used their hair. The first used her hair to dry the tears. The second used her hair to spread the oil, which again, sounds weird to us, but women had extremely long hair back then and they often did this. It was a custom. So Jesus said that the lesson of the first anointing was gratitude for forgiveness. He told Simon a story. He said, Simon, let's suppose two guys owe this person a lot of money. I mean, one owes them a lot of money. One owes them a little bit of money. And he forgives them both. Which one do you think will love him more? He said, well, I suppose the one who was forgiven much. He said, exactly. He said, this woman has been forgiven much. That's why she loves me much. So the first story is about being grateful for your forgiveness. The second story, Jesus says, this was a preparation for my burial. So there's two different meanings from the two different anointings. They are definitely two different stories. So at this dinner, we have Mary, the wonderful worshiper. She's the one that's going to break the oil. And, and pour it over Jesus. Then we have her sister, probably there also. She's the worrying worker. Remember Mary, when, Je- when Mary sat at Jesus' feet, she's in the kitchen cooking and doing everything, getting trying ready, and she frantically comes out and says, Jesus, would you tell Mary to get in here and help me? And he's like, you know, Mary, he said, Martha, you're, you're worried about many different things. She has chosen the better thing, to sit at Jesus' feet. And what's interesting about this story, and this is Gary's speculation, okay, so don't take this too far. But it could have been Martha anointing him with oil, but it wasn't. Because I still think Martha probably hasn't learned her lesson. She's so busy serving God that she doesn't have time to spend quiet time with God. We need to be able to do both, right? That, that, that's the balance of the Christian life. There are some Christians who spend so much time in Bible study, and then you ask them, can you help with something? Oh no, I'm too busy. <laughs> and there's other people who are serving, 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 but seem to have no time for, to be, have spend some quiet time on your knees with Jesus. We need to balance the two. We know Lazarus is there, and he's the walking wonder. I mean, he was a testimony of the deity of Christ, of the supernatural power of Christ that he raised someone from the dead. No one had done that in the way that he'd done it. He was in, how, how many days was he in the tomb? Four days. They said, because by now he stinks, right? And so Jesus raised him without the stink. So the supernatural deodorant was in force, and Lazarus is the walking wonder. In fact, he was such a powerful testimony to Jesus that the, the Pharisees wanted to kill Lazarus. Because he was spoke out so highly for Jesus and people. How you refute it? Hey, I was dead. You want to think Jesus is not the, the right Messiah? He raised me from the dead. I think that's good enough confirmation for all of us. And then we also see at this dinner, Simon, 
the, the washed wonder. He was a leper, and now he's cleansed of an incurable disease. People didn't get cured for, for leprosy without some supernatural intervention, which is exactly what Jesus did. So think about this, who's sitting on this table. All of these four people, plus Jesus, plus the disciples are there. So we're looking at 17 or more people. What about Mrs. Simon and all the little Simons running around the house? Who knows how many people are there? We're talking 17 or more people at this big dinner, maybe in honor of Lazarus, quite an occasion. Can you imagine being there? Imagine being at this table, this dinner, and seeing all these friends seated around this table. Imagine maybe you just met Jesus and he invited you to this dinner and say, hey, uh, I want to introduce you to my friend Lazarus. He's the one that was dead and now is alive. This is Simon the leper. He used to be a leper, but he's not anymore. Uh, here, this lady used to be demon-possessed, and she's not anymore. And it's just You're sitting around all-stars of people who have been healed at this dinner. And I think Jesus orchestrated this dinner to say, hey, don't forget all that I've done, and keep in mind what I'm about to do. I'm about to die on the cross for your sins. And it's not just any old man dying for your sins. God became human flesh, lived amongst, amongst us, performed all these miracles to prove who he was. Don't forget it. I think that's what this dinner is all about, and maybe even much more. So this woman, Mary, came with an alabaster flask of ointment with pure nard. Nard was a very expensive uh, oil that came all the way from India. So boats that traveled around the world would bring this home. They would sell it for a whole lot of money. Very costly. Later it tells us 300 denarii. Okay? Anybody remember what one denarii is? A day's wage. So 300 is... A year's salary. So, Gary, a year is 365. Well, wait a minute. Minus all 52 Sabbaths, because you don't work on the Sabbath, and minus the two weeks of holidays that you don't work at all, 365 minus that is 300. So, a year's salary. What do you make in a year? Don't say it out loud. Thank you. <laughs> don't embarrass the rest of us. Um, what do you make per year? Let's just say the average American makes $53,000 a year. This is what she poured out on him. This was worth a year's salary. A lot of women would hold on to this as a family heirloom. Like maybe they inherited it from their mother, their grandmother, great-grandmother. And this is just in case you become a young widow, you can survive. And this Mary is young, and she sacrifices her whole financial future for Jesus. Let that sink in. She makes an incredible sacrifice. It was very costly. And she didn't just pop the top and the way, this, the way this bottle was designed is you could pour a couple of drops at a time. She didn't do that. She broke it. So again, this was likely a family heirloom. This was her retirement plan in essence. And it represents all that she was and all that she had being given to the very worship of Jesus Christ. So what do we say around here at Revolution Church? Worship God passionately. And this is what she's doing. She is passionately worshiping Jesus. I mean, some people can look at this like the disciples did and say, oh, that's excessive. You're going over the top. I mean, that's kind of fanatical, don't you think? And there's always going to be people like that. So compare this woman's sacrifice what, with the story we just did a few weeks ago of the widow's might. The widow, if you remember correctly, I had a different take on this, that she wasn't a hero in the story as much as she was a victim. She was giving to the corrupt temple. Jesus had just got done condemning the temple over and over and over again for all the hypocrisy happening there, all the money changers, all the selling of animals and all the things. And it was supposed to be a house of prayer and they were making a, a flea market into it. And he kicked everybody else. 
And she comes and she gives two minute widow's mites to the temple and gave all she had because the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees devoured widows' houses. Isn't that what Jesus just said? So the context says she's a victim and she gave all this. And you compare that to what Mary's doing here and she's giving all of it to the right cause. She doesn't give it to the temple where all the corrupt hypocritical religion is. She gives it to the true Messiah and she sacrifices everything for him. We need to send our sacrifices in the right direction. So we have the scheming foes of them trying to plot his death. We got the sincere friends around the table. And now we move to the skeptical followers. Skeptical followers. Let's see. So in the next verse it says, For there were some who said to themselves, they're kind of murmuring, maybe in their head or under their breath, and they're very indignant. They're mad about this. And they're thinking, oh, why was this waste made? And this, can you believe this? And Mark says some. Okay, the other gospel says it was Judas. But you ever been a group, a group where people, where someone speaks out and says something, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you say, well, they were all were saying it because one's the spokesperson and everybody else is in agreement. So there, again, a no contradiction there. And they say, why was this ointment wasted like that? Wasted, wow. Wasted, really? Her brother is alive. He was dead. And Jesus raises, what would you pay for someone to bring your, be, your brother who you love back to life? $40,000 is a pretty good price, I would say, for a dead person to come back to life. And they look at this as, as a waste. Of course, some of you are saying, well, you don't know my brother. But anyway, it's a whole different story. So for this ointment, could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And then they scold her. It's no longer under their breath over here. They're like, Mary, what did you do that for? Do you realize we could have given this to the poor? Right there while Jesus is sitting there. I, I mean, the, the, the boldness is, is off the charts here. And they say, people, there's always going to be people who will do this to you. If you get serious about living for Jesus, I mean, you really get into the word, you really start telling people about Jesus, you really start giving, you really start doing all kinds of things that show your commitment, you're going to get all kinds of comments like this. Like, you, you gave how much to your church? You know, I'm all for giving a charity, but that, don't you think that's a bit much? I mean, we, uh, we asked the church to step up to send kids to camp. And I asked for two families. I, didn't, I don't know who gave what. No, and, and I didn't want to know. I just said, do it anonymously. We asked for two families to give 1,000, eight families to give 500, and on down the list to break down. And for the lowest amount, somebody just give 50. The two, the two 1,000 were the first to go. And I'm sure if you, if you had a relative who knew, you gave what, $1,000 for kids to go to camp? Come on. Don't, I mean, don't you think that's a little bit too much? Don't you think that's a little bit excessive? Other people might say, you go to church on Sunday, and then you go to life group another night, and then you, then you go up and clean the church. Don't you think that's a little bit much? Man, I mean, I'm a Christian, but gosh, that just seems over the top, don't you think? And others might say, you know, I enjoy church every now and then, but every Sunday? I mean, every Sunday? Can't we take a break every now and then? Shouldn't we take a few Sundays off? I know lot, it was a couple of years ago when Christmas fell uh, two days before, I mean, church, Christmas fell two days before church. There was actually several churches that canceled services that weekend. I'm like, what, really? I mean, we just need to take a break from Jesus? I, I, I don't think so. Um, and there's people who might give you a hard time about being excessive, like Mary was. And, uh, and that, that should say, homeschool your kids? Sorry. <laughs> homeschool your kids? Why would you do that when you can make more money outside your family, you, for your family later, working somewhere else? I'm sure people give you all kinds of hard time about living for the Lord. I remember when I was 15 years old, I went to teen camp, and I remember the Lord called me into the ministry at camp and I surrendered to the ministry. And I came home from camp 
And I told my dad, I said, hey, dad, I made a big decision this week. He said, really, what's that? I said, I decided I want to be a youth pastor. I want to go to Bible college. I want to be a youth pastor. And I want to serve at a church full time as a youth pastor. He said, Gary, I think of all the things I've ever heard, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's what my dad said. My dad was, was not a believer. And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of people who said, okay, you, know, you can still serve the Lord over here. You don't have to give your whole life to it. You know, why don't you get a job making serious money and then serve the Lord on weekends? But that's, that's not what I felt like God called me to. Other people say, well, yeah, I understand raising your hands while singing, but, man, doesn't she act a little fanatical? You know, we, you know, we all might raise our hands and worship every now and then, do something, whatever, maybe have our hands in our pocket. But if somebody gets really serious about worshiping the Lord, like, oh, well, that's weird, you know, that's kind of creepy. Is it? Is it? I mean, are we, could, do we sometimes fall into that crowd where we're skeptical of Mary? You know, you want to go to Africa to do what? And waste all that talent? Imagine, you're the valedictorian of your class. But instead of working for a Fortune 500 company, you want to go tell people in the Sudan about Jesus. There are going to be people tell you, that's a little crazy. That's a little excessive. That You're really asking too much. The, you know, there were... You may not know this, but there was half a dozen of big decisions the Supreme Court gave in the past few weeks. We're all talking about Roe versus Wade. Praise God. But another decision that came down was over this Coach Kennedy. He was an assistant football coach at a, a public high school up in Washington State. And get this, after every game, not before, not on the microphone, nothing like that. After every game, when everybody's walking off the field, he would go over to one end zone and touch, put his knee down and just thank the Lord for the game and thank the Lord for what God's doing and thank the Lord for his job that he can influence the lives of young men. And there was other players, hey coach, you mind if we pray with you? He's like, if you want to. And parents said, hey, can we pray for you? And so after every game, there was a handful of people praying after the game. Nobody was required to stay. And he got fired. He was told, if you're going to do that, you have to go into this classroom. Over, we'll give you a classroom over here in an empty building, empty room, do it by yourself. But you can't bring that out to the public. Christianity is meant to be out in the public. Our founding fathers prayed and sought God before they wrote the Constitution. And our Congress prays every day when they meet. But yet a private citizen can't pray on a football field after the game is over. Well, Coach Kelly won his decision, got his job back and all that. But the Supreme Court upheld his decision. But there's people telling me, you know, you know, I understand what you're doing. I'm religious too, but you don't have to do it in front of everybody. You know, after all, the Bible says pray in your closet. Well, yeah, for certain things it does, but for certain things it says pray publicly. It's not one or the other. It's meant to be both. And there's people saying, you need, you need to tone that down. You're just causing trouble, you know. But, you know, I'm, thank, I'm thankful that this coach stood up for what was right. So Jesus, and I added the exclamation point here because there's not, there's not exclamation points in the Bible, okay. But I can't imagine Jesus said, hey, leave her alone. I think he said, hey, leave her alone. Golly, come on, guys. They're scolding her for what he did, for what she did to him. He said, why do you trouble her? And you know, that's a question we really need to ask. Why do people get upset if you seem to be too religious, too spiritual, love Jesus too much? Why, why do they trouble you when that happens? What would you think? I think it's convicting. It's like, you know, I should be like that, but I'm not. I remember one guy I knew, a pastor I knew, who was working, and I can't remember which type of work it was, if it was electrical or whatever, but one of the union reps came up and said, hey man, I know you're doing a good job and you're really killing it, but you need to slow down because you're making the rest of us look bad. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm a Christian. I'm going to give 110% while I'm here at work. 
And I think that's the way people are when you are serving God and you're giving your all. People are like, hey, you need to slow down. You're making us look bad. I think maybe that's what's behind it. But Jesus asks a great question here. So why, why do they trouble her? Why do we trouble other people if they seem like they're doing too much? He says that what she's done is a beautiful thing. Imagine being Mary. And every time you think, I really miss Jesus. You know, I, I enjoyed following him for three and a half years. He blessed my life so much. He raised my brother. I really miss him. I wish he was here. I can't wait till he comes again. But then that memory flies back in her mind. He said what I did was beautiful. I hope the Lord looks at what we do and says, that's beautiful. You can't give too much to Jesus. He gave all for you. We need to give everything to him. I hope that Jesus can look down to us and say, good job, Greg. That's beautiful. Way to go, Ashley. That's beautiful. Karen, thank you for singing up here. That's beautiful. That, that's what the Lord, what's, that, that's what we should live for, is to hear our Lord and Savior say that what we're doing is a beautiful thing. So if what you are doing is called beautiful by Jesus, then who cares what anybody else thinks? If we seek to please him in everything we do, we need to forget about the opinions of others. There's always going to be people saying, what a waste of talent. What a waste of time. What a waste of money. And we just need to hear the words of Jesus saying that it's beautiful. So do you think that those seated around the table, Simon, the former leper, Lazarus, who was brought back from the dead, do you think that they thought it was a waste? I, I doubt that they were the ones in the crowd saying what a waste of time. And he says, Jesus says something really interesting here. He says, for you always have the poor with you. That was the argument. Oh, we've got to play the social justice card. What about the poor? We know from the other Gospels, Judas didn't even mean that because Judas, what was he doing with the purse? He's stealing out of it. And people will play the poor people card all the time as a reason not to be too spiritual or have too much. There's people who are in this country right now who are fighting to take away tax exemption from churches. All we're doing is collecting money so that we can send people to Africa to spread the gospel. We, we just spend lots of money on benevolence. We helped a grandma down the, I mean, a, a widow down the road here. We've done all kinds of things to give away and they want to tax us for it. You're taking money out of your pocket that's already been taxed, giving it to your church to help people, and they want to tax it again. And, and it's wrong. There's people who do that. They'll play the poor card all the time. Jesus isn't knocking the poor. He's saying you'll have opportunity to give to the poor. It's, it's not a question of one or the other. It, it's really something we should do both. So we, we have this balance between the poor and Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, stop giving to the poor so you give it to me, or stop giving to me so you give it all to the poor. It is a balance. And then he says that what, she has done what she could. Now this phrase is interesting. I think that basically this was all she had. This is all she could do. She had nothing else. She had no change in her pocket. She had nothing else to give. She had this one thing that maybe she, she probably inherited. And that's the only thing. But she gave it. And then she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Three times prior in the past three weeks, Jesus says, I, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the scribes and the Pharisees and be beaten and condemned and crucified. He's told them three times. He said, so I'm going to be buried. And so they're thinking, what does he mean? Is this another one of his parables? Does he mean spiritually he's going to be buried? What, what does he mean in this situation? Now, I want to know, does Mary know that's what she's doing it for? I actually want to believe that yes. I'm not sure. Um, she may have been among those who were surprised that he wasn't in the tomb. I don't really know how much she understands. But Jesus says, whether she knows it or not, this is signifying for my, my burial. Because Jesus' body would not be anointed 
he would be in a rush thrown into a rich man's tomb and not get a proper anointing like people did after they were killed, after they died. And he says, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed. Now, the gospel, what? What do you, you talk about the gospel, Jesus? Well, I'll show you here in just a little bit. He says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done be told in a memory of her. And here we are. Look at this. This happened over in Israel. And here we are in South Texas talking about this lady 2,000 years later. And maybe, I'm sure, thousands of churches around the world somewhere probably preaching the same message, talking about, and, and when this happens, probably somewhere in the world, every Sunday for the last 2,000 years, people have talked about Mary anointing with oil. Do you think she did the right thing? Do you think it was too much, over the top? No, I, I think, and again, it wasn't for her glory, but Jesus gives her recognition. So let's talk about the skeptical followers. We kind of touched on it, we, and we talked about, the scan, now let's talk about the scandalous fraud. That's who Judas was. He was a scandalous fraud. It says Judas is scared, so we know it wasn't, there was another Judas. And he was one of the 12. And it's like, why does Mark stick that in there? Like, we didn't know. I mean, we've been reading here for 14 chapters now who Judas is, and you're going to remind us he's one of the 12. I think there's a very significant point here. And the point is, you can be under great Bible teaching and around great Christians for three and a half years and still not be one. And I have nobody in mind when I say this, but I would not be surprised if there's someone amongst us. You've been here for a long time. You can read the Bible. You can quote the Bible. You give. You do all kinds of things. But could you also really not know Jesus personally so much that after three and a half years of being around the perfect Savior, you hate him enough to betray him for 30 pieces of silver? I think it's a warning to all of us. Jesus told us that there would be tares amongst the wheat. And it's always possible to have a Judas amongst us and not even know it. When, when Jesus at the Last Supper said, one of you is going to betray me, the disciples even have a clue. They had no clue. I mean, if, Jesus, if Judas had been the skunk that he was and been pretty obvious about, oh, one of us is going to betray Everybody point to Judas. Yeah, it's him. It's him. No, they're like, is it me? I mean, they had no clue to the point. They're like, oh, golly, am I that unaware of my own self and my own feelings that it actually could be me? Not even have an idea that Judas was a sheep, uh, a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. So, and when they had heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. So J Judas goes to the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, says, I want to betray Jesus. And they're like, great. And he gave him money, 30 pieces of silver, which is the amount of money used to buy a slave. It really wasn't a significant amount of money. It was a, it was a good amount of money, but it wasn't like uh, what this lady had just given she just gave $53,000. This was probably maybe $150 that Judas sells out for. One gives all to glorify Jesus. One gets a little bit to betray Jesus. And then here's one of the scariest phrases in the Bible. It says, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. You know, sometimes we fall into sin. And falling into sin is one thing. But God forbid that we actively seek an opportunity to betray our Savior just so we can gain something. 30 pieces of silver, looking for it. How can I get 30 pieces of silver for Jesus? But we do it too. We look out for 30 minutes of porn just so we can betray our Savior. 30 minutes of cooking the books at work to make our numbers look better and make our sales look better. 30 minutes of gossip about someone who's not there. We do it too. 
We, we betray the Lord often, and we need to be, use Judas, Judas as a warning. See, Mary sought an opportunity to give everything for Jesus, and Judas sought an opportunity to give up Jesus for cash. Quite the contrast here. And again, he takes a female and he exalts her. And so the Bible doesn't oppress women. The Bible exalts women for sure. So the last actor in the play is the sovereign father. He's not really mentioned, but he's totally in control. Remember, it said they don't want to do it during the feast. Let's try not to let this happen this week, and especially on, on the last day of the festival, the Passover. We, we need to make sure it doesn't happen. We need to make sure it happens by stealth. But the very worst time to betray Jesus for them was in the middle of the Passover. And yet it says here, God orchestrated history. All of history has been building up to this day, this time. And so that Jesus would die at 3 o'clock exactly all, when all over Jerusalem, thousands of Passover lambs are being killed. The, the Lamb of God is being killed on the cross. Who is in control of history? God the Father is. He is the sovereign Father. He's the one who orchestrates every step we take. Even a bird doesn't fall without his sovereignty being in control. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The, the, the word definite means the precise plan, the precise day, the precise person, the precise place, and the precise time of day. The definite plan and based on God foreknowing all of history. God knew everything. There was nothing going to trip up God's plan. He said, at all the, to these two factors, the definite plan of God and the foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed the hands of, and lawless, by hands of lawless men. So God's in control of the crucifixion of Jesus, and yet he says, you're the ones who did it, showing that God and truly is sovereign, and he exercises his providence over all. So, so this woman, Mary, came with an alabaster box, uh, flock, flax, some translations say box, of ointment and pure nard. It was very costly. And what did she do? She broke it and she poured it. That's important. He said this, the gospel we preached all over the world. Where's the gospel in this story? She broke it and she poured it. Jesus, when he's doing the Last Supper, he says he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then he goes on to say, this, this, this cup of wine is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Just like Mary broke the flask, the body that contained what was precious inside, she broke it and she poured it out. Jesus' body, which was contained the precious blood of our Savior, was broken and poured out for us. What an amazing story that Mark gives here. And he doesn't even give us the application. He leaves it there for us to study and to find and to show us what's going on in this passage. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Okay. I want to know, do you know this Jesus whose body was broken and his life was poured out? Do you know him personally? Or are you a Judas? Do you, and I don't, don't mean to make you sound as bad as Judas, but we're all sinners, including me. But you could be very religious and not know Jesus. Do you know him personally? It goes, this verse goes on to say that for with your heart you believe and you're justified and with the mouth, Confession is made to salvation. I'm going to ask everybody in the room, if you would, please do me a favor. Just let's bow our heads and pray. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you pray that the Holy Spirit of God would remove the scales from people's eyes and the darkness from hearts so that the gospel and the light could penetrate? And if you don't know Christ as Savior, 
If this message seems disturbing or troubling to you, you can know him personally today. There's no magical words you can say. It's just by faith you believe that he died for your sins. He was buried and buried all your sins in the grave with him. And on the third day, just as he predicted, he rose from the dead with eternal life for all who would believe. Have you trusted him? Have you made that decision? I remember when I was nine years old at Vacation Bible School, I heard this message like this for the first time. And I was only nine, and I understood this. You're, you're old enough to understand. Are you willing to understand? Maybe you could just take a moment right now and say, Lord Jesus, I do believe you died for me. I give my life to you because you gave your life for me. And I believe you forgive all my sins and that you rose it from the dead. Father, thank you for this beautiful story of Mary who made an incredible sacrifice to anoint Jesus, to not only anoint him king, but to anoint him as savior. Thank you that your body was broken and that your blood was poured out, far more precious than this ointment. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made and we, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. If you made a decision to trust Christ today, there's my cell phone number. I'd love to hear from you. Let's talk about your new steps as a, as a child of God. Uh, we're going to do question and answer. Amanda, if you would like to come help me, that'd be great. So if you haven't texted your question yet, you can do that right now. If you'd rather just raise your hand and ask it, you certainly could do that. But we do it this way in case someone wants to ask a question anonymously. So if you're watching from home on the live stream, again, text in your question, and you can send that number right here. And it looks like we do have some questions already. That's good. Here you go. When Lazarus died the first time, did he end up in Abraham's bosom? Do you think he experienced any sadness or depression when the angels came to him and said, Hey, Lazarus, um, we need to send you back. Jesus <laughs> is resurrecting you. Sorry, buddy. You're being evicted. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard somebody talk about it that way before. Um, we don't know, obviously, what happened. There's no biblical record of what happened to Lazarus. But because Jesus hasn't resurrected from the dead yet, all dead prior to that do go to Abraham's bosom, just like um, the rich man and Lazarus, the other sharing the same similar name. Um, the rich man was in one side. Um, uh, it's all Hades, but there's the, this, there was a great gulf fixed. Remember that? And, the, the, and Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom, which means he's just in the arms of Abraham, which is a description of the heavenly place. And when Second Peter says that Jesus led captivity captive, I believe when he resurrected, while his body's in the tomb, his spirit went down into Hades, and on the saved side, he led all those captives, who were that captive meaning a temporary waiting place, captive to go to heaven, you know, and then part of the, as part of the resurrection, where they all could, now the gates of heaven are open. So here's my theory on that, and again, totally speculation. I believe as soon as, Ab as uh, Lazarus died, Abraham said, hey, you're here temporarily, enjoy this for four days, and you're going back, and you need to go back, and here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to say. And Jesus loved you this much that he hasn't forsaken you. In fact, right now, he's crying with your sisters. I can totally see that, can't you? I mean, again, it's just sanctified speculation. In many Mediterranean cultures, a woman's hair is highly prized and considered her covering. Wow. I wonder what the significance is, if any, when the two women use their hair, a precious covering, to wash Jesus, using their outward covering to cleanse and wash another. 
Wow, that's, that's a great observation. Good for you, whoever that was. Um, yeah, in fact, Paul said a woman's hair is her glory. That's why he endorses long hair on women, and he talks about nature itself tells you it's a shame for a man to have long hair. So he, he says, you know, a man looks masculine but the, by the way his hair is, and a woman looks very feminine and glorious by her long hair. That's Paul's words, not mine. So you're taking your glory, the very thing that's representing you being very feminine, using it to wash someone's feet, that, that takes a, y- a lot of humility, and I think they nailed it there. That's a, that's a fantastic observation. That's it. Any other questions? Yes, Ashley? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. If you didn't hear what Ashley said, do you think the phrase, she did what she could, alluded to all she could do up to the burial. And I think that's yes. Um, I think she was one of, you have to correct me if I'm wrong, one of the ones that went to the tomb with spices to anoint his body further, but of course it couldn't happen. He was gone. So whether she knew it or not, she was giving the only anointing his body would have. And like I said, there was two anointings, maybe even three in the scriptures, depending on how you read it, but they weren't the same incident. But yeah, that's a great observation. I just, just came in. Okay. I'm sorry, Ashley. You're still, yeah, nope. You're too far over on this side, I guess. So Samson wasn't masculine. Didn't he have a bunch of hair? Yes, great question. So remember, Nazarites were the exception. Nazarites took a vow, and they they stood out as saying, I took a vow that I would uh, not cut my hair, not drink wine, not go near dead things. So in other words, if a Nazarite had a family member die, they could not participate in the burial. And that was part of their vow, so they stood out from the rest of the culture. So the only way they could stand out is if they're the only ones with long hair, they were basically a voluntary Levite. I wasn't born a Levite, but I want to become one. So they made the vow not to, uh, cut, their, uh, to cut their hair so they would stand out. But I'm sure they, anyway, we can speculate on what they did or didn't do. I, don't, I think that's probably the first comment I've made about men having long hair I don't know, in 25 years. Okay, So it's not a big issue with me. I'm looking around the room, hey, guys have long hair, I don't, I don't see any. Okay, so anyway, the Timmy, yeah, Timmy has great long hair. You could say he has the Jesus look, I don't know. But anyway, um, so I, to me it's not a big issue. I don't, I don't preach on it. I know some preachers hit certain topics hard just because they're easy targets. I'm only bringing it up because of the question here. So any other questions? Anybody raise their hand? Okay, cool. All right, let's stand. And we're going to stand. We, the way we started the scripture was read, started the service was reading a scripture. And the way we're going to end it is the same way, reading this scripture over one another as a blessing uh, and uh, as God's people. Read together with me Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.